Coming up on this episode of the Mario Rosenstock podcast. You see, rugby is a very technical it game. Is. And like I'm all my life in the game and I could be sitting in the commentary box and the referee gives a penalty for something and I'm scratching my head saying, what's that for? If I'm struggling to understand, what is the casual observer at home? Like, yeah. what chance is he? So I always try and make it simple and try and involve the fellow who watches soccer today, hurling tomorrow, rugby the next day. Yeah. And I actually enjoy when somebody comes up to me and they say, look, geez, I really understand it now. You, you explain that very well. Well, if you're of a certain age, you would be very familiar with my uh, guest this week and his prowess on the rugby field. Um, an Irish rugby captain, an Irish triple crown winner, um, an Irish lion an Irish manager of the Lions at one stage. Um, and he's had a stellar career as uh, an Irish player, a monster player, and now as a pundit and commentator. And if you're a younger com- uh, pun- uh, listener to the podcast, you'll recognise him as the distinctive Donald Lenahan voice. Um, that is a very shouty but passionate voice on um, RT uh, co-commentary duties. And um, he tries to make the game as accessible as he can um, by explaining certain aspects of the game. And he's a brilliant commentator, and that's why I have him on the podcast, because I started doing him as a character on Gift Grub, and people really responded to it, because uh, there obviously is a lot of affection for Donald Lenehan out there. And not only is Donald a true legend of the game of rugby, he is also a seriously good storyteller, and I mean that. Wait until you hear some of the stories he has to tell. Um, some funny, but some very poignant as well. And we had so much fun together overall in this podcast. And then as soon as he retired, he all changed his physical yeah. appearance. All the yeah. muscles started slimming down a bit. Yeah. And now he's... he's well, it's, well, well, he's one of the guys who adapted. Mm. You have other guys who try to eat the same calorie intake <laughs> without doing the training and they're like the size of a boss now. Do you know what I mean? And just as he, he was picking up his underpants anyway in the lift to the Shelburne, he looked around and he says, my good woman, he says, I let you know, when I'm off the Guinness, I get at least two weeks out of an underpants. <laughs> <laughs> when we spoke about all that and he addressed the thing about having to eat the bodies and how the families when they came home that was the hardest thing but all the families agreed that it was the right thing to do and it it meant you know that they all survived as a consequence of this so you're there like you have all this gossip going on in other words you're, you're well, Matt, Matt Cooper is a Sunday as well man so they've nothing else to talk about only everyone else you know you see you're so bitchy <laughs> This is a cracking conversation and it's coming up in a couple of minutes' time. But listen, did you hear the news? Apparently Michael D, the president, was rushed to hospital. Now, I think he's okay. I think everything is fine. We've been told that everything is fine. But listen, if he's a bit sick, of all the times we had access to the presidential voicemails. Wait till you hear these. <coughs> this is President Michael D Higgins. I'm a little under the weather at the moment. If, if you would like to send on your good wishes and compliments, uh, please do so after the message. Thank you! Uh, Karol, this is uh, Tisha Clear for Acre here. I, I'm sorry to hear you're uh, feeling unwell. Uh, as a doctor, I would uh, advise you to remain as quiet and still as possible. Um, as, little as, as little speaking as possible as well, particularly on any matters to do with policy, which can, you know, uh, endanger the, the, the heart rate and uh, become uh, over-anxious, lead to panic attacks, etc. Uh, so make sure you get plenty of bed rest, no speaking at all, uh, for I'd say at least a couple of months, uh, plenty of paracetamol. Thanks. Hi, uh, President, it's Mary McCallaghan here. Sorry to hear you're unwell. Listen, on the QT, on the down low, if you need to step back um, from duties for a couple of days or, or, or months even, I'd be really delighted to fill in. I think people would really enjoy it just cause as, as a novelty, you know, just to see somebody else, you know, in that role, particularly a, a woman. Um, thanks. Get better soon. Look, they're on. This is Paul O'Connell. We're playing England next week, and I'm looking at the uh, roster here. We have you down on the plane over. We need to know, are you in or out? Are you sick or not? Are you injured or not? This is England. Are you up for the challenge to put the fear of God into these fellas? The country's pride depends on you. Let me know now. So, Donal Lenehan is waiting patiently over in the studio. 
he has been warming up on the sidelines. National anthem has been sung and he's now raring to go. Let's get straight into it with Donal Lenehan. So I don't know if you're aware or not, but you're one of the newer Gift Grub characters. Well, I keep being told by some fuckers when I'm walking down the road, Jesus, I was listening to you this morning. I have no idea I wasn't on this morning. What are they on about? <laughs> and, uh, and then my son got on to me about your most recent... Um, is it Hollow Street Hospital or whatever? Yeah, Hollis, yeah it was, it was yeah. the Rotunda. Oh, the Rotunda. Oh, yeah. sorry. So you were live from the Rotunda. That's right. You were live from the Rotunda Hospital where um, all babies are being born left, right and centre. And they're all being um, thing. And you're, and, and you're doing it as a commentator. So, yeah. so it's like, uh, so it's like, that's right. Well, the Rotunda is a sea of nappies at this stage. It's pampers all over the place. There's two Joe McCarthy's been born. There's 16 Johnny's been born. And 15. Jack Crowley's been born already so uh, yeah so the, the, it's going down well I've, I don't know why it, you see sometimes you do a character and it captures something yeah. and you, 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 you said you said this line a couple of times as well this could change everything <laughs> and all I know is my son is due, we're due our first grandchild in a couple of weeks and he said thank God we're not going to the Redonda <laughs> so, <laughs> so anyway uh, he thought I might have a bit of a Inside information or influence. Yeah, but the, no. the other thing, see, people have enjoyed the character because the other thing it taps into is a few cork things. And it's that kind of, I suppose I'd call it gossipy, right? <laughs> so so Matt Cooper has it as well, right? So watch my face when I talk. So Matt Cooper has what I'd call gossipy Matt Cooper. So it's that thing of, so Matt is talking away like that, right? But then he, he'll, he'll beckon you over here like this, look. And then suddenly his, his lips will close and he goes, you hear about Donald Lennon? <laughs> I hear he's in terrible trouble altogether. <laughs> Jesus, I think the business has gone fucking bust. Right? And you're going, sorry, what? Are you a ventriloquist dummy, Matt? Or something. And then the thing with you is, you'd have it as well. Not the ventriloquist dummy thing, but you'd do it in your commentary. So you'd go, that's right, I was talking to Sebastian Le Chaval there, and his uncle was actually a friend of my niece's mother. And he says, three weeks ago, that he was driving around in a Renault Megane around the south of France, and he wasn't feeling well, so I wouldn't be be surprised if he doesn't come out tonight. <laughs> so you're there like you have all this gossip going on. In other words, you're... you're oh, well, Matt, Matt Cooper is a Sunday as well, man. So they have nothing else to talk about, only everyone else, you know. <laughs> you see, you're so bitchy. <laughs> you're so gossipy and bitchy in Cork. It's the way we have it. Yeah, yeah. You know, sure, you know, it, as they say, there's only two types, those from Cork and those who'd love to be from Cork. You yeah, know, I know, I know, I know. Yeah. That's, it's, it's one of the failings, but anyway, we'll yeah. get over it. So, as we do this podcast, um, we're just off air there, we were talking about uh, how you sort of said Ireland win by 25 points and people are sort of getting angry, but they're not getting angry. But it's just that we're getting used to this, Donald. We're getting used to this unbelievable feeling of watching an Irish team rich, ritually go out every weekend and hockey the arse off everybody. And, you know, aren't we, aren't, we, aren't we living in golden, golden times? Yeah, we are. And that's why I, I must say I get annoyed. I've been involved in this game a long, long time and we've seen the ups and downs and we're at a scenario now where we have this incredible team packed with world-class players. I mean, we lose a Johnny Sexton, one of the all-time greats, and we have a young fella come in and it's a, a seamless transition. Um, but, you know, it's... it's uh, we've So far in the Six Nations, we've three... Uh, winning bonus points, maximum 15 points. Um, the Welsh game was, I won't say it was a banana skin, but Warren Gatlin, I know Warren Gatlin in a long time, and uh, they were always going to turn up and make life difficult. And you could almost sense a, a degree of panic around us. I was doing the match on telly, so at least I had the headphones on. I couldn't hear uh, half the stuff that was going. But, you know, there was almost a, an air of God, Ireland weren't great today, were they? Yeah. They only got four tries. Yeah. They won by 24 points. Yeah. Oh, we could be in trouble against England and Twickenham. <laughs> we might only win by 20, you know? Well, maybe it's the best thing that's happened to us then. <laughs> well, I think it is, yeah. in a way. And, and but, Twi- Twickenham is always different, different but, place to go. Yeah, and it wasn't always thus, Donald. And, and I'll explain <coughs> to you what I mean by that. I mean, I have a 16-year-old son called Dash. And he came in to watch half an hour of the match with, me, with Wales again. He looked at the, the thing and it was uh, 20, 31 points to, to seven or something and he went ah oh, this is boring dad Ireland just <laughs> hawking these guys again right and I'm going yeah and I'm thinking back to my childhood and I'm thinking back to when I was 14 and I'm thinking back to when I was 1985 and I was in Lansdowne Road when um, when 
you got the ball out of the line out and charged through you're covered head to toe in muck you were like a pig basically rolling around in the muck and I was 14 and I was in Lansdowne Road and uh, you're rolling around in the muck and the ball goes back to Michael Kiernan and he, he sticks it over a beautiful drop goal and I watched it the other day again actually on Twitter that, that piece of play Fred Cogley commentator commentating on it the inimitable Fred Cogley and I was just thinking these, these days were so few and far between for us and of course my son now just expects this to happen all the time and it was a different world back then, Donal. You were amateur players. Um, it was it was a it was a totally different way, world in every respect. Totally. I mean, uh, I was actually quite lucky. I came into the Irish team, got my first cap in November '81, and 1982 we won a triple crown. We won the the Five Nations Championship as it was then, and that was seen as such a massive thing that uh, we were actually playing France for the Grand Slam. But there was four weeks, because you were only five teams, there was one round where one team had a downtime. Unfortunately for us, we had four weeks between winning the Triple Crown. We couldn't be beaten in terms of winning the championship uh, before we played France and Paris. And um, there was a lot of celebrations in the four weeks in between. Yes. We didn't. And, and again, going back to that stage, winning the Triple Crowns appeared like winning the World Cup. Yeah. I mean, Ireland hadn't won one since 1949. Yeah. We had people like um, uh, the great Jackie Kyle and Carl Mullen, who was captain, yeah. coming in to meet the team. And we thought these fellas were dinosaurs. And when I look back at it now, they were, that was 33 years earlier. And yes. I was saying, Jesus, uh, we're in that category yes, now. Yes. Do you know what I mean? And, uh, but it was, it was incredible. Um, but we celebrated like there was no tomorrow. And th- well, that was, uh, so from that point of view, I was lucky. That was 82. I was with a, I was a young fellow, Moskeen, who was my roommate. Was, it was like, I suppose, winning the lotto. Because when I was in school, I only started rugby in secondary school. I'd gone to a national school, never played rugby, didn't know what it was until I came into CBC in Cork in secondary school and uh, immediately got sort of sucked in by this game. And luckily, I I, I appeared to be reasonably good at it. I was getting on all the teams. But Moskeen was a hero. He was on the Munster team at that side, went on to get his first cap the following year. And I end up as a 21, 20-year-old playing with him for Munster, 21 year old playing with him for Ireland so it was like you and and Moss was just uh, you know when they speak about characters Moss was a one off like everybody knew Moss uh, and I was like in his slipstream uh, sort of tugging in behind him and at that stage the Ireland pack they called it Dad's Army because everybody was over 30 <laughs> right? and I was 21 and yeah. Moss used to say Christ Lennon and he says you're only on this team to bring down the average age of the pack <laughs> yeah yeah so uh, but like rooming with him was just uh, yeah Ma- for those who don't know out there I mean you're speaking freely about Ma- Moss Keane Moss Keane was a kind of a second row forward he was a gigantic man he used to go on the rampage every so often during game we'd always wait like a bit like Ryan Baird now going on yeah, the rampage we'd yeah. wait for Moss to carry five men on his shoulder <laughs> up the middle of Lansdowne Road was he from Kerry? Or? Moss was Kerry yeah Kerry. And, and, and my people were my father was from Kerry so there was a kind of an affinity there yeah. I was UCC Moss was UCC yeah. so he kind of took me under his wing yeah. but, um, What was he like to room with? Oh Jesus it was a, a laugh a minute in that uh, we used to come in on a Wednesday night into the Shelburne at amateur days so we had Thursday and Friday to prepare but Moss would come in and I always remember uh, and he'd take out like he was seen as this wild man but he was highly intelligent Massey mm. was one of the few fellas who had a masters in agriculture at that time but he loved playing the gambine yeah. and then he'd sit in the back of the bus and win all the quizzes and yeah. nobody could figure out <laughs> Jesus how does this fella know everything but uh, I remember he'd come in and we'd, we'd uh, in those days you're in the Shelburne in the heart of Dublin the mm. best hotel in town so we're rooming together with two single beds that we could barely fit into but uh, Moss would unpack and he'd take out this uh, uh, the the Cork examiner at the time and he'd have uh, I don't know what he was doing he had these things ro- he, he, he had six raw eggs rolled up for two every morning in the build up to the mats and he'd, he'd take them out of the newspaper and say Christ Lenehan have a look at them he says this shit is still hanging off him look at him <laughs> and he'd have two of those every morning with a, with a bit of uh, with milk yeah. and then he'd have uh, the, the, 
He was way ahead of him time. He used to have pollen tablets and garlic oh, yeah. pills and all that. Yeah. I used to be looking saying, Jesus, maybe you have to be over 30 before you go on to those things. But yeah. uh, I always felt if I could survive the Thursday and Friday roomie yeah. with Moss, the match was a piece of cake yeah. afterwards, <laughs> you know. But he was the focal point in that he was the character of the team. Everybody used to come into our bedroom and yeah. Moss would be roaring out the window. And of course, it only dawned to be years later, but Moss was as cute and... But he was relaxing people, the tension and all that. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what he was brilliant at. But come match day, he'd switch on. And like we had a great relationship in that, you know, Massey was getting older at that stage. He would let me roam around the line out and decide where I wanted to operate on the basis that I'd pick up their best fella all the time. Mm. So it took pressure off him. Mm. Um, but that's the way he was. But uh, I remember one day, again, as I say, we used to share, but Mass and the, the Saturday night, a lot of the Dublin based fellas would go home and stay in their own house. I mean, mm. when you think about it now. Mm. Mm. Um, and, and so, therefore, if you had your, you know, the wives or the girlfriends were able to stay in the room. But I remember Mass coming in on one Sunday morning. He had got off home. He came in at about 12 o'clock on the, the Sunday and he just gathered up all his clothes were on the floor for three days. And uh, Christ, I'll see you next week. He gathered in anyway, but apparently he got into the lift now. He'd been in bed for about two hours at this stage and he smelt like a brewery, I'd say. No gear bag or anything, just all his clothes. And he dropped a few underpants on the floor going down in the lift. And there was this, uh, the wife of one of the committee people were there and she's looking at him and she says, Mosquito she says you're an absolute disgrace look at the cut of you he said look at you your clothes all over them and just as he he was picking up his underpants anyway in the lift to the Shelburne he looked around he says my good woman he says I let you know when I'm off the Guinness I get at least two weeks out of an underpants <laughs> which <laughs> I didn't endear him to the committee I don't think but anyway oh, I love it but that's that's yeah. what he was I mean uh, uh, it was great yeah um, yeah but and when you when you won a game in those <clears throat> instances, a big game, I mean, you, you presumably you went completely half wild. Well, there was always. I mean, again, it was a more sociable um, time in that you had a reception back in the safe. You won at Lansdowne Road. You mm. come back to the Shelburne. We always then, it was tradition. We go down to Donahue's pub. Mm. So you get into your tuxedo. Mm. You'd walk down, and there's pictures in there to this day. Mm of the Irish team coming in after matches but you were kind of feated like a hero mm. all the people were in there and it was fantastic so we come across the road then back to the Shelburne where you were the post-match event and uh, it was uh, you were sitting with so you might have eight people at a table but you'd four from the opposition team and four from our team mm. so it was great you got a chance to shoot the breeze with players mm. from other countries mm. uh, but again in the amateur days you see there was more interaction in many ways in that uh, there was always these kind of games to open up a picture you had Barbarians game Irish Wolfhounds they were all invitation teams mm. so you had loads of matches that you were actually able to play with players from other countries mm. so it, it was fantastic you built up a great camaraderie even in those old days mm. I mean I'd be friendly now with a lot of Scottish and English players that I went on Lions tours yes. with mm. and uh, you know, I go to Twickenham in a couple of weeks' time mm. and there's an ex-internationals bar there. Yeah. And you just go in and, jeez, you'd see a fella from 30 years ago and yeah. there's a nod, you're over, you're having a pint and all of a sudden you're back in Australia or New Zealand. Do you remember the night we were yeah. here or there? It's, yeah. it's, it's fantastic. It I is. don't know, do the modern player yeah. get to enjoy it as much? And, yeah. you know, I spoke to Johnny Sexton recently. I, I had a huge time for Johnny Sexton. And uh, I think it's a regret of his now, having just retired, that he didn't enjoy the big moments enough. There was always the next thing. Like even last year, they won a Grand Slam. Mm. As I said to him, you're only the fourth captain in Irish rugby history to lead Ireland to a Grand Slam. But Mm. if you remember, it was against England in the Aviva. He damaged his groin. Mm. uh, And this is three months before the World Cup. Mm. You could see it was a serious injury. Mm. So his mindset going off, his head was down. Mm. And he was thinking, am I going to make the World Cup? Mm. But what he missed was everybody stood to their feet because there was a recognition that Mm. this was his last home Six Nations game in the Aviva Mm. and he missed it and uh, you know because they're always kind of the next target next focus they don't enjoy the moment as much even though I think to be fair Andy Farrell 
has been Teaches brilliant to, yeah. in terms of capturing that. I mean, you see things now that even five years ago would have been uh, ridiculed at. I, I saw uh, Ireland had a team run on, on Friday where they get their photographs. So they'd go out on the, um, the Aviva day before the match. They'd run through their routines, just a light session as such. But then there's an official team photograph. I saw Peter O'Mahony with his five-year-old son, Theo, who's dressed in the Irish gear. And kind of he's holding his hand walking around the pitch and I'm saying, Jesus, if if that was seen a couple of years ago, they'd be telling you you're not focused enough. This is madness. Get out rid of all. But that's what Farrell has done. And I think a lot of that is due to the fact that apart from the fact that Farrell is an outstanding coach, uh, he, he's he's unique in many ways in that he's he has an, a unique understanding of almost every aspect of the game. You'd have there's a lot of speciality in rugby, you know, in terms of scrum, line out, forwards, coaching, defence, attack. But he's uh, brilliant at each and every one of those. But outside of all of that, he has this understanding, and I firmly believe it's because he's the father of an international rugby player. His son is captain or was captain of England, sadly stepped back from international rugby because of welfare issues and the abuse that England got at the Rugby World Cup. Bear in mind, they finished third. Uh, Owen Farrell is an iconic figure yeah. in English rugby, yeah. yet he's been forced to step back from the Six Nations. Nobody knows will he play for, yes. or for England anymore. So you must remember first, Andy Farrell is a parent of an international rugby player. Mm. So... I think that puts him in a unique position to not only does he have all the technical skills, but he has the understanding, Mm. the mental side, the pressures that families are under. And he has made that Irish camp such a brilliant place to be. Mm. And people are, they can't wait to get in there. They're told, go home, you have a two day break. And they're almost, geez, I've got to go home and talk to the wife now. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? (laughs) Uh, They can't wait to get back into camp. And then you have a competitive nature. I mean, on Saturday, you're bringing on Jack Conan, who was a, a British and Irish lion only two years ago. You've young Ryan Baird, who's a star of the future. James Ryan, who everybody had said was going to be captain of Ireland for 10 years. Mm. He's struggling to get on the team now. And that's the level of depth that they have. And mm. that's that's what Fardell brings. Mm. Isn't it notable, or do you ever think it's notable, that um, two of the biggest team success stories we've ever had in our history as a nation, namely the the Irish football team of the late 80s, early 90s and this particular team were kind of, have been helmed by a northern English man. Kind of, you know, this kind of, I mean, Jack was obviously a Yorkshire man and... Isn't isn't Andy some Andy is kind of Wigan sort of Manchestery? Oh, well, he's Northern England, Northern, or, uh, north, north of England, real ex- rugby league yes, stuff. That's tough, what I mean. Hard but, leads, but, it, Wigan. but I wonder, is there something in that persona? I, I, funny, I never thought of that before. Um, it's an interesting one. It is, it is, and funny. You go back to Jack Charlton in '88 and '90. Mm-hmm. I was captain of Ireland at that stage, yeah. and you know, I remember the first World Cup in New Zealand, 1987. The RFU didn't want us to go because they saw this as the prelude of the game going professional which was like oh Jesus this is the end of the world we can't allow this to happen all the amateur values and all that so we were they almost we didn't have any training sessions in terms I remember as captain organising the forwards to meet in Dublin myself in preparation for the work it was almost as if they didn't want us to succeed on the basis of uh, what might come as a result of a World Cup Um, but I remember going there and uh, Oh Jesus! We like it shows the amateur days now. I mean, before any trip now, the Irish team they're sponsored by Aer Lingus. They have their own plane. Do you know they <laughs> yeah. they can they have about fourteen seats each. Yeah. We got on to fly to New Zealand via London, via Los Angeles, via Honolulu. <laughs> oh, so Christ. when we come on the plane, we turn right and we're down in steerage at the yeah, back. Yeah. And who's next to us but the Scottish team who were in the World Cup and who's sitting directly across from us but the Welsh team who yeah. were playing in the opening match in Wellington. Yeah. And you're 36 hours with these guys yeah. in a flight. Yeah. I mean, absolute and utter madness. Yeah. Um, I'll never forget it. I mean, we were uh, we had all that long journey. We're flying 32 hours on the plane. We're flying into Auckland and everybody's exhausted. Everybody wants to go home at this stage yeah. and we haven't even arrived. And the pilot said... Um, there's fog in Auckland so then we 
But when we thought we were landing after 32 hours travel, we're hovering around Auckland two hours in the air. And then he tells us we're running out of fuel. So we fly down to Wellington and we have to sit on the tarmac for an hour as they refuel to fly us back up to Auckland. So we had another six hours. By that stage, we walked off the plane (laughs) and everybody says, fuck this, let's go home. Within about two days, Mick Doyle, our coach, got a heart attack. Right. So, I mean, it was it was calamitous from day one. Absolutely. But, uh, I mean, somebody said as well, I, it's a, is this apocryphal? But somebody said the 87 World Cup, we were completely disorganised. But that one of the ways that we were disorganised is that we had no national anthem when we came onto the pitch. Well, yeah. And somebody said that they, they had to, somebody had to drum up the Rose of Tralee. Well, I'll tell you exactly what happened. We oh. were the last game of that series. In, in the first round of the first ever World Cup, we were the last game to be played. So we watched all the opening match. I remember the, very, I remember the opening game and you knew you were in New Zealand. New Zealand played Italy. Now Italy were real minnows. Mm. But I remember we were actually, um, we were in Wellington at that time preparing for our game against Wales. I remember being in downtown Wellington about two hours before that match was going to be televised. And the place was a ghost town. I went into this massive department store and uh, all the, the shop assistants were in there. They had little televisions to watch the match. I mean, you were now, you were in rugby mad New Zealand. The whole country mm-hmm. stopped. But you go back, you had uh, the anthems were played. The Italians, passionate people. The tears were rolling down the faces of the Italian players. Now they got stuffed, I think, 60-0 by New Zealand in that opening game. And then as the, the days were going on, I remember Canada played a match, all their players, the emotion and the whole thing. I was captain of the Irish team. Yeah. And you see, the protocol, when we played in Dublin, we had our own Levine. When we played in England or France in those days, we had nothing. That was the understanding. You uh, So therefore, you respected home jurisdiction. Mm. There was also the scenario whereby when the visiting team came to Dublin, their anthem wasn't played. Mm. So um, this was beginning to become a problem at this stage. I remember one game we played Australia and they delayed the kickoff. They went into their own huddle and Sing, sang their yeah, own anthem yeah. and delayed the match. Mm. So this was becoming a big problem. But I was... I was um, captain and this was bugging me I mean I'd be an old traditionalist and um, I went to Sid Miller who who sadly died only a couple of weeks ago a fantastic man a brilliant rugby man in Ireland and, and uh, on the world stage I said Sid uh, I presume we're playing our anthem and he says, no, no, no. He says, the same protocols apply. I said, Sid, this is different. This is the World Cup. We're on the world stage here. Everybody else has their anthem. So um, I got a bit piggish about this anyway. And I counselled. Uh, I remember going to a lot of the Ulster lads, you know, the Ulster Protestants, who uh, had always said they had no problem mm. with Oran Levine. <coughs> So I counselled opinions of the likes of Willie Anderson or Trevor Ringland. No problem whatsoever. Uh, so we had a meeting anyway uh, about the Thursday or Friday before the match. And um, uh, it was pig-headed uh, from the RFU. There was no way they were going to change the stance. And after about four hours of eight, everyone was exhausted and it was agreed there'd be a compromise. And Phil R had a cassette, which was James Last's, uh, an instrumental of James Last, and the Rose of Tralee was on it. Yeah. And that's how it happened. Ah, oh, for God's and sake. And that was the first match. And I'll never, like, it was horrendous. So we're in this huddle and it was a, an instrumental even, even if the words were coming out, it might be something. But, uh, yeah. And I'll never forget after. It was a disaster. Of course, it didn't help then. We'd lost to Wales, who we'd only beat in Wales, yeah. in the Five Nations, two months earlier. Yeah. But I remember going to, you must remember now, New Zealand was a long, long way away mm. in those days. People mm. went there and they were never coming home. Mm. And I remember there was an Irish community that we were invited to mm. in Wellington after the game. And you had all these Irish kids in their Irish dancing gear and they were performing for us up on the stage. And mm. But you could see they were all ashen-faced. And, you know, I spoke to one of the, the representatives and they were, what was that? Where was our national anthem? Um, you know, they were absolutely mm. shattered because they were waiting as mm. Irish people living abroad and I wasn't there. Mm. So that is the reason why you have Ireland's call. Now, 87 World Cup, I played in the 91 World Cup here, but because we were playing at home, the same issue didn't arise. So the next World Cup was in South Africa in 1995, and the RFU finally said, geez, we've got to address this. And that's when Phil Coulter uh, commissioned Ireland's, Ireland's call. call. Yeah. Which, you know, it's it's... It's not to everybody's liking. Yeah, it divides. Yeah, it's funny now. Kids have, like it. They do, but I was 
thinking about it. I was yeah. commentating on the match on telly on Saturday and I love that moment before kickoff when they hand over to you and I always take off my headphones because I love listening to the... I mean, Le Marseille is in, in Marseille in the opening match. Jesus, you could go home after that. Yeah. I think the French did, which <laughs> that was the problem. <laughs> but, um, um, but that moment... But it, it struck me. I thought... On Saturday, Ireland's call nearly was more voluminous than than around the Vian, do you know? Yeah. And I think you're right. A lot of the young kids, the younger generation, yeah. have bought into it. Yeah. Um, you know, well, I mean, it's in English for starters. Well, and, it is, yeah. and and it has a very simple refrain. Yeah. And uh, we can get behind it. And uh, I don't know when they're holding when they're when the guys are standing in a line and they're holding onto each other's shoulders and they're shouting shoulder mm. to shoulder and yeah, Ireland's yeah. call. It, it's something you can. Get yeah, behind. it is. The only problem with it is Cork doesn't get any mention. Like you have Limerick <laughs> and Galway and like Jesus, the walls at Limerick and Dublin Bay. Like where are the Cork fellas? Like there's always more Cork fellas on the team. We don't get any mention. But anyway, oh, God. we're not bitter. And twisted. You no, know? you're not. No, no, no. Um, you, 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 do, do you regret maybe not being a top flight rugby player in this environment of earning money and being professional? Or are you happy with what yeah. you had? Well, I tell you, it's something my generation all speak about. And <clears throat> there's only one regret that we would have, and that's not being able to get the maximum out of what you are as a player or an individual. Mm. In that we all had our, like, we, the minute we, we play an international on a Saturday, travel home on a Sunday, you're in work at nine o'clock on the Monday morning. Mm. Uh, you don't have the same recovery. You don't have this. You, we didn't have the same approach to training, obviously. I mean, uh, uh, you guys are so big now. I always make the comparison. In our days, when we got injured, we put on weight. Nowadays, when they get injured, they lose, they lose weight yes. because they're they're pumped up to the nines. Yes. I mean, I remember seeing Paul O'Connell. I was out with him one day. He spent the whole day eating mm. because they're trying their maximum calorie intake. Mm. They're trying, but then when they're injured and they can't train or they can't go into the gym, mm. uh, they lose weight. You see them. I I, I find it quite hilarious because mm. obviously I'm in the media game, and uh, you know you obviously you're we're always who's the next fellow now who's going to come in after retirement who wouldn't talk to anyone for the last. <laughs> Years. <laughs> I know, and you see when they come into the media room first, their head is down and they're, oh, Jesus, who am I going to talk to here? Yeah. But you literally see them shrinking in front of you over the years, the two or three years after they retire. Yeah. They come back to being the amateur player. Normal they human beings. Sure, exactly. look at Brian O'Driscoll. Exactly. Sure, Brian was, yeah. Brian, yeah. I, 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 I often hear you talking about weight. Yeah, like when you're commentating, you go, "Well, this fella now he plays for Bordeaux, and apparently he's twenty four and a half stones." When he comes on, right? And you're kind of going, "So, look at Brian O'Driscoll, for example. He's exactly pretty much my height, about five foot ten, and he. I remember we're looking at his stats once, and it was like he was up against fifteen stone, and of course that's." very overweight for a person who's 5 foot 10 unless it's all muscle yeah. and of course he was all muscle and then as soon as he retired he all changed his physical yeah. appearance all the yeah. muscle started slimming down a bit yeah. and now he's, he's well it's well well, he's one of the guys who adapted mm. you have other guys who try to eat the same calorie intake <laughs> without doing the training and they're like the size of a boss now do you know what I mean but uh, do you enjoy you being a pundit or sorry a commentator uh, I love it I have yeah. to say yeah. like if you're not I've been a player I've been involved in management yeah. at, at the very top levels. Yeah. Uh, so if you're not involved with the team, yeah. what's wrong with getting the best seat in the house? It is, but it's clear that the passion comes out from you. Yeah, well, you see, it's 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 funny. Like it's like you you fall into these things, and um, you know, I've been probably doing it a long time now. But I, people say, well, what? And and it's funny. I got. I get a lot of people coming up saying, look, I really enjoy it. You make it simple for us. You, I'm always conscious. You see, rugby is a very technical it game. Is. And like I'm, I'm all my life in the game and I could be sitting in the commentary box and the referee gives a penalty for something and I'm scratching my head saying, what's that for? If I'm struggling to understand, what is the casual observer at home? Like yeah. what chance is he? So I always try and make it simple and try and involve the the the, the fellow who watches soccer today, hurling tomorrow, rugby the next day. Yeah. And it I I actually enjoy when somebody comes up to me and they say, Look, geez, I really understand it now. You you explain that very well. And that's exactly what I see my like rugby are uh, commentary, radio and television are totally different. Television, radio, you've got to paint a picture for the person who's in a taxi or who's at home or who might be mm. down in Australia or New Zealand. Mm. 
uh, television, they see the pictures. So you you have to explain the why. Uh, correct. You know what I mean? What's happening? Or Michael why. Corcoran is great on the radio. Yeah, he is. Michael is, is. He uses kind of, a bit like yourself, he uses kind of language that you might go, veers slightly away from normal sporting language. Yeah. Like you'd hear him there, he'd be listening to him on the radio and he goes, Paul O'Connell has the ball. Paul O'Connell, he's monster through and through. He's monster. Monster are great. I mean, Ireland are going well here. Monster. He's, he gets the ball. He looks at the fellas. It's like, get out of my fucking way, you dope. Get out. He, he takes some Welsh fella. He just boxes him. And he's, he almost, he, he's getting really into it. That's, yeah, I mean, when I go with Michael, I have to bring four boxes of tissues because he nearly drones me with next spittle. to me. Exactly. No, I'd be lucky to get a word in anyway, so I don't have to do any preparation for that. But I love the way Michael Corcoran is unashamedly biased. <laughs> yeah. He just brings no sense yeah. of objectivity to it at all. Yeah. It's well, just purely biased. But it, it, it sort of brought it home to me another time, um, you know, the, uh, 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 from a radio perspective, we did uh, Munster play the All Blacks in 2008 in Thomond Park. You might remember the, the famous the, the night famous hacker. when Munster, the four lads, did the hacker to the... I mean, uh, that was one of the most unbelievable Spine nights tingling. of all time. I remember that there was a parachuter came in with the ball. Nobody knew that uh, it was Rua Topaki and, and uh, Doug Howlett who most capped New Zealand when they uh, came out of the line Donald. when they came out of the line this nobody knew what was good now I had heard a whisper alright wait you see this Frankie Sheehan I think had rang me wait you see Cooper this Matt Cooper didn't ring you did he no, wait you see no, this no. hardly Rua Topaki is <laughs> no. coming out of the line yeah, no the Sunday's well fellas don't ring anyone <laughs> from Cork Con so <laughs> I'm still a bit parochial there but anyway the boys stepped out of the line and this was just off the yeah, charts it was. And, uh, culture it was just yeah, culture as I if you were told you can go home now, everybody would yeah. have been happy. But a week, a week, I mean, it was that kind of a night, it was that kind of a match. Munster were short about eight players because Ireland were playing New Zealand the following yeah. Saturday. So the likes of your Paul O'Connells and Ron O'Garris, all those guys were in Dublin yeah. watching this on the telly. So it was more of the second string Munster fellas, you know, uh, fortified by the Doug Howlett's, yeah. Lifemi Maffey and these guys, yeah. Rua Tapaki. They were playing. And Munster are winning like with about five minutes to go and then uh, we all reckon Doug Howlett deliberately missed a tackle like so that the All Blacks wouldn't be beaten by Munster again. <laughs> but um, about a week later, you never get any feedback. You know, when you do a job like, uh, well, I, for a long time, um, never nobody, tell, you know, well, they tell you if you made a ball or something fairly quickly. But I remember after that game, somebody in RT sent Michael and I a load of, of texts that came in. And there was one in particular that stood out to me. It was a guy, a Limerick fella, who was in Chicago and he's listening to the match on the radio in the Starbucks cafe. And he said, Jesus, he said, you won't believe I'm like, I, I'm a passionate monster man. I'm in Starbucks in Chicago and I'm, uh, I have my, my laptop on. I'm listening to the match being streamed on the radio. And at one stage I jumped, I got so excited, he says, with your commentary, I jumped up and I started singing, stand up and fight. And he says, there was two fellas sitting across from him reading their book and they're looking at this fellow and saying, in the name of Jesus, what's the story with this fella? But he said, I was in Thoman Park. And that, I mean, that's the ultimate compliment. It do, is. do you know what I mean? Because uh, that's exactly what you but need to do. I was into America though as well, so I'm well, surprised it, they didn't take out an AR-15 and shoot well, his brains out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they weren't quite that bad in two 2008, no, he wouldn't not. chance it, no. Uh, but that's that's exactly what you're trying to paint, yeah. that type of picture. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Rugby. Rugby, rugby, rugby. I love rugby. Um, uh, and actually, there's a, there's a thing on Netflix at the moment, The Society of the Snow, the, yes. the, about the story of the, the crash in the Andes. Yeah. People might be vaguely aware of it. I think you have a, a small uh, anecdote from this, don't yeah. you? I mean, there was another film made uh, 20, yeah, 20 years ago called Alive. Alive, The yeah. story of, is it the Uruguayan or the Argentinian rugby players? Uruguayan. They Uruguayan. Were a, they were a school, well, they were a club side from Montevideo. And, uh, oh, it's famous. Uh, the, the film Alive came out, I think, in the 80s. But there was a book, a, a, um, Miracle of the Andes, which came out uh, around 2005, six, um, by a guy called Nando Parado. Nando Parado, I mean, just to put this in context, it's an, uh, an Uruguayan rugby side who were on a tour in Chile, 46 people on a chartered plane. The, ch- the plane crashes in the Andes uh, and, and they were missing, presumed dead for 72 days. Next thing, 16 of them survived and they're alive. And it's their story. But they had no chance of survival, really. And two guys, a fellow called uh, um, uh, uh, well, Nando Parado and one other, 
they trekked for 10, 11 days over the mountains in rugby boots. Uh, they, they prepared for this trek for uh, oh, for, for, for almost two months. But I mean, the bottom line is they were left in the Andes, no food and the, the dead bodies were there and they had to make a decision. The only way they could survive was eating the flesh of the dead of their like Nando Parado. His mother died, his sister died and his best friend died all in the one day. And I was in CBC. I was second year in school and our principal was a brother called uh, Brother uh, O'Reilly. He was he had taught in that school in Uruguay. So when the crash happened, he brought the whole school into the hall and we all prayed for these rugby players who were missing in the Andes. And then I remember we were brought in three months later. 16 of them had survived. And um, so that's what the film was about. But Nando Parado, who was one of the two, uh, Roberto Canisa was the other. They were the two who trekked for 10 days. Like uh, adventurers would tell you, no, you couldn't do it. They did it with rugby boots and they sewed together the seats of the planes, made sleeping bags out of them. Um, but there was and, and uh, you know, the whole issue of then of having to survive by um, having to resort to eating the flesh of the dead bodies. Uh, but Nando Parado wrote a book in, 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 in about 2005 and I was on my holidays 2006 and I read the book and uh, I'd been writing for, in the examiner that time uh, ever since the, uh, around that time and I decided I'm going to interview this guy because the whole story I felt I lived that when we were in the school and we lived the story. Ireland were, had a, t- a two test tour of Argentina as it happened in 2007. So I got on to Tony Lean, the sports editor and the examiner who's been brilliant to me from day one. I said, Tony, I have an idea here. I might go to Montevideo and interview this guy. And uh, Tony thought it was a great idea. We could do the two tests. As luck would have it, Nando Parada was in Buenos Aires when I was there. I, I tracked him down. Don't ask me, I can't even remember how, but I tracked him down and it transpired. We were in Buenos Aires at the same time. So I interviewed him. Of course, I told none of the other journalists or, or things on the tour. I was afraid of my life. I was paranoid that somebody else is going to cop this, but they didn't. But I interviewed him for an hour and it was, I found it incredibly emotional. And he, he, he was a second row. He, they, they, he played rugby for 10 years after they survived. And he knew my name. He would have followed international rugby. He was only, well, he would have been maybe 10 years older than me, but he... Uh, he had known my name, which made it easier for me to to get the um, the the intro. So I told him about the school, and he got quite emotional about this. But I remember at the end uh, when we spoke about all that, and he addressed the thing about having to eat the bodies and how the families, when they came home, that was the hardest thing. But all the families agreed that it was the right thing to do, and it it meant you know that they all survived as a consequence of this. But um, he told me at the end. Uh, obviously all those bodies are buried up in the mountain in the Andes that his father he had gone back there four times because his mother and his sister were buried there he uh, he had got trekked back and it's not only you fly in you've got to be three days on horseback to get to the location uh, where the grave and where the, the old fuselage is mm. and um, he he told me he brought his father back there three or four times and in the end he says my father has made me promise that when he dies I bring his ashes and he gets buried in that point with his wife and his daughter oh. I mean it was it was a phenomenal moment really um, I remember I did a kind of a oh geez, two three thousand word pieces was a sequence story in the examiner at the time and I hadn't been writing that long yes. but uh, so when I saw the Society of the Snow, it brought it. Nando was actually interviewed at the end of that yeah. again. Uh, it, it was phenomenal. It was one of the, um, it brings it home, sort of just what life, all of those. There were 16, I think, the 16 of them all survived up to a number of years ago. And they used to, Nando told me they'd, met, uh, they'd meet on the day, a private function on the anniversary every year and all the families over the years the kids and the grandkids all sort of came in mm. and the whole thing then it sort of gave meaning to the what they did in that a whole generation had because so, they would have died if they didn't resort it gave meaning. to eating it gave, it gave it meaning gave, and context to the whole thing 
So it was, I, I found it hugely uh, emotional and empowering. Yeah. Um, so it was only when that, I mean, that Netflix thing, I'd advise anybody to watch it. It's an incredibly, it's a kind of a, a film documentary. Oh, yeah. But it's brilliantly done. Yeah. And well told. Thank you for saying that. You told the story well. Um, did Roy Keane have any influence in your first steps into journalism or? Yeah, Roy, uh, it's funny. Um, I knew I, uh, one of my best friends in Cork was Roy Solicitor uh, in, in Cork. Uh, no, no um, not uh, Olin Keller. Michael Connolly was... Uh, no, he was for his UK. British. This was his more UK, for Roy. <laughs> this was more for Roy's uh, hometown misdemeanours. <laughs> <laughs> oh, like Abracababra or whatever. Yeah, yeah or, exactly. Yeah, or yeah, whatever. Yeah. Temple Lake or Tower. No, he was more, 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 more a solicitor to the family. Yeah. But as a result... <clears throat> um, but as a result of that, we used to go to Old Trafford all the time. But um, uh, but if you remember Saipan and all that, I had been manager of the Lions the previous year uh, in Australia. Um, and uh, the examiner, it was about conflict management. And Tony Lean and the examiner got on. He said, could you do, what would you, give me your view from a management perspective of how this should have been handled, Mick McCarthy and Roy Keane and blah, blah, blah. So I wrote a piece on this, which was kind of my first entry into the journalistic world. But uh, I knew Roy, so I was, of course, 100% in his, because we used to go to Old Trafford in those days and uh, we had the best seats in the house. But there's a player's bar so when you see the teams coming out in Old Trafford they come out at the end of the pitch by the corner flag almost um, mm-hmm. and there's, there's a player's bar right there mm. so it's, let's say we would be in the best seats in the house on the halfway line then we go out of the stand we come around the back into the player's bar it used to always amaze me in terms of these the high level of sophistication these professional players by the time we got around all the young players would be in there drinking their pints <laughs> and the players would, would only get a pint as a visitor you could only get a half pint they had this bizarre wow. thing but I remember the likes like um, uh, Ryan Giggs and Nicky Butt and Paul Scholes they were all young fellas on that team there could be 20 fellas from Cork inside. They only get one ticket each. So Roy used to go around to all these fellas and squeeze their tickets out of them. Yeah. You see, so you go in and we'd be having our points waiting for Roy to come in and all these heroes. I mean, I remember um, uh, Schmeichel, who was a big lad, was in there. One of the lads I was with was smoking and Michael, uh, Schmeichel comes up to us, this is a no-smoking zone. <laughs> you see, they, but... Um, uh, but all the, the the Man United players, oh, geez, the Cork crowd are in again today. We were the only crowd who were foreign. But Roy was fantastic. I used to, I used to love those nights. You get, we'd go away. Roy would have a pint or two in exactly. those days, whereas yeah. he kind of gave it up subsequently. Yeah. But we'd go off. But he was more. He was massively into rugby, which I yeah. couldn't understand. Um, sure, didn't he go down to New Zealand and everything? Oh, and, he did. And, and oh, he, was, he went with the training camp. That's and right. He was in with the All Blacks when Ireland were playing there. Yeah. That was quite funny. I think the Irish Paul O'Connell and Ron O'Gara, who would have sort of Ronan would have known him for through the same reasons that I would. But they were down in New Zealand as Ireland were playing New Zealand, and Roy was in the New Zealand camp. And uh, Paulie got on. And he says, "Roy, can we meet you for a meal?" <laughs> and uh, so they said, "Yeah, of course." Yeah. So so Roy was delighted to get out and see a few fellas that he knew, a few familiar. Accents. So they were down for a meal anyway. So Raj was there and he was tell, tell us, Roy, what did you learn in the camp? What are they doing? What did you pick up? Is there any insights you could give us? And Roy turns around, I did, he says. All I could hear all week is they're going to fucking target you all day, he says. <laughs> <laughs> so, of course, the other lads got a great kick out of this and O'Gara was off, oh, for God's sake, here we are again, you know. But uh, but Roy was was was. Uh, I used to love those. Uh, but what was the journalism thing? What was the connection with the journalism? Did he say? Ah, well, it was because of his the issue with Saipan. No, okay, I mean that that was the first time I was ever asked to write something. Okay. You see, so okay. um, I always kind of you know give nod to Roy and say I'm. I, I think I'm 21 years writing for the Irish Examiner now. But that was the first one. That was the intro. And after that, I think Tony Lean said, James, yeah, your man is a bit of a player. He can write, all right. Because I, I always say, I, always, I write from, from day one. The first art apart from that I did was ghostwritten. Most of the guys who were on the papers, the ex-players, a lot of them are ghostwritten. Yeah. My first one was gone, but I insisted I had to read it, you see. So, um, Jesus, it was so bad, it took me four hours to correct it, <laughs> which is the best thing that ever happened, yeah. because after that, I wrote my own stuff. Yes. And... Um, and I must say, I love it. I mean, yeah. you, you, uh, you know, you asked about sort of commentary. You're there, so I mean, I'm coming at it for both angles, and uh, um, you know, it's 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 
again you were asking about the professional game would I have liked to have been in that yes I would from the point of view of trying to maximise your talent and your ability not for the money mm. but professionalism has given me another outage in that you know I'm, I'm involved professionally yes. from um, a journalistic and a yes. commentary and an, an, uh, an, an uh, an anal- uh, as an analyst yeah. with, with RTE so yeah. I mean I wouldn't if rugby hadn't gone professional you wouldn't have that level or that in-depth quality of coverage mm. what, 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 do you, what else do you do Donald what do, you, do you have a profession well, I, yeah well I was involved I was in banking and finance for yeah. years um, yeah I worked I remember my first That's about, it's just an easy thing to say banking and finance you don't mind me if I ask you what the, what the hell are you <laughs> well, talking about well when I, I, I came out when I was I mean you're not standing behind the cad the tail no no well my first when I came out to UCC I got a job for the Industrial Credit Corporation oh, the ICC. ICC yeah the famous ICC uh, ICC yeah. which was fantastic in that we like so we used to give um, uh, European backed loans to commercial businesses yeah. uh, all that type of thing I then worked for Investment Bank of Ireland and uh, a permanent TSB involved in uh, commercial and residential loans. lending exactly yeah. uh, I went out on my own oh, when so I uh, after soon after I mean, when I when I stopped in management with, mm. uh, say, Ireland and the Lions, I was under pressure, you know, get involved in the RFU. You're the type of person mm. we need and yeah. blah, blah, blah. And you could be president of the RFU. Yeah. But I mean, I, I was looking at this. I had just started my own business. Mm. And uh, I mean, in fairness, there's people, you know, with the RFU, Munster, Leinster, who give their lives and their, mm. but they do it as amateurs. Mm. Like, I was of the opinion, well, look, all the players are getting paid an absolute mm. fortune. I can't give away all my spare time for nothing. Mm. Um, so uh, as a consequence of that, I, as I say, I was involved in the finest. I had my own business for a number of years. I only sort of um, finished that up a couple of years ago. Yeah. Um, oh, so you so stopped working there? I am not. Well, I'm I, fully involved in... In, in your personal and rugby? Yes. Oh, yeah, so that's yeah, your kind yeah, of thing yeah, now? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, very yeah, good. Yeah, well, only for the last three years. So, so you kind of gave up your financial decide yeah, to, the, yeah, the arm yeah, to your yeah, life? About four, yeah, about three or four years ago. Ah, um, wow. So it's great. I mean, it, yeah. it just... Well, and so now you're, 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 it's rugby journalism, rugby punditry, commentary. Exactly, all, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I'm involved in a couple of things. I, and, uh, you know, just one of the, the, the rugby travel companies and that yes, type of thing. Yes. So, uh, But I mean, it's, it's full on because, you know, I mean, you take a, a World Cup in New Zealand in 2011, Japan 2019. I'm out there for seven, eight weeks. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's full on. It is, yeah. No, it's... I don't get a whole lot of sympathy when I tell someone like, geez, I have to go to South Africa for two <laughs> no, weeks now when, um, when Munster are in the URC. Yeah. Or and presumably you'll go for this summer when Ireland yeah, play. Yeah, and, um, I'm there for that. You know yeah, for I mean? those viewers yeah. who aren't yeah. as interested in, or listeners who aren't as interested in rugby, Ireland play um, South Africa in Durban and Pretoria this July. And um, it's going to be seen as for many, by many as a kind of a quasi-World Cup final. I'd say by the South Africans will anyway. Um, they'll want to yeah, get us back. funny, I just met Jerry Flannery over the weekend. He was on... on uh, and the RTE panel and he's now become the South right. African defence coach so we were having our breakfast yesterday morning he said make sure he says no take it easy on me when I'm on the other side of the fence <laughs> <laughs> I says that the same thing applies with you take it easy on us yeah, yeah. so you got you your know? headphones there Donald there's, yeah. a, there's a few people who want to say hello to you on the phone so do you know people listen to this podcast live Donald I didn't know. Yeah. Oh, do you not know that? No. <laughs> oh no, there's live listeners. So I actually, I, what I do is, I send out the the idea that we're going to be on the podcast and it's whoever's in, and um, so I say, would would you like to be involved in this? And they say yes. Yeah. So Roy Keane's actually on the line. Would you like to say hello to him? <laughs> say hello to Roy. How's it going, Roy? Yeah, how's it going? I never heard such a lot of bollocks in all my life talking about me getting into journalism, huh? <laughs> You know, man management. What would you know about man management? <laughs> I taught you a lot of those quiet days in, uh, in, in Manchester a long time ago. Yeah, no, I'm listening to this. I'm listening to you spinning all sorts of stories here about lads eating other lads up in the mountains. Why wouldn't you eat another fella? <laughs> I have no problem. I've, I told Scolzi I'd eat him once. You know, Butsy. You know, why wouldn't you eat somebody? Who would you eat? Well, uh you, you can't just eat them like when they're alive, right? It's a little bit different. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll give you that one. Um, okay, that's great. Ronan O'Gara's on the line as well. Say hello to Raj. Raj. <laughs> yeah, how's it going? 
Donald. <laughs> well done. Another great result over the weekend, Rog. <laughs> what happened? I wasn't... Did I lose again, did uh, the, I? Uh, just a, a narrow defeat to Perpignan. I think it's their fourth in a row, Rog. You want to get your act together down there, boy. Well, you know I'm doing this, of course, because obviously the monster will need a gaffer at some stage. So, yeah. do, do you think I'll ever manage Ireland? Yourself? I, I think you'll find it uh, hard to get away from the beautiful scenery of Ile de Ray at the moment. The weather in Cork isn't quite as appealing. No, no. So, um, how are things anyway? I'm sure we're not too bad. Looking Good. forward to seeing Enjoying you the Cork conversation. <laughs> yeah? Yeah, well, my, my French isn't quite up to where you are at the moment. What did you... No, it's set fucking fantastic at the moment there. Uh, bonjour. Um, come here. What, what do you think of... You know, the atmosphere in the Aviva is manky at the moment. Yeah, it's a point. A lot of people are giving out about it, although I have to say when Ireland were under a bit of pressure, small bit of pressure in that uh, second half last week, yeah. I actually thought the crowd got behind them. I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying the new suggestions that a few of the lads have come forward with Paulie. I don't know if you saw Paulie's latest suggestions that they're going to transform the Lower East and the Lower West Stand into a monster only. <laughs> stand to guarantee some um, and keep the, the Leinster lads up towards the back up towards the corporate areas yeah it's great to try and teach them stand up and fight the, the, the full three verses of it I'd say we go down well alright no they wouldn't be interested in watching the match anyway yeah Rog great, great to talk to you it's great to talk to Rog you, you, do you like Rog? Oh, Raj, one of my favourite people. Mm. I remember him as a as a young fella, even coming into the Irish setup, trying to explain to him why we weren't bringing him to the World Cup in '99. Yeah, because of his uh, lack of experience yeah. behind David Humphreys and yeah. Eric Elwood at the time. Yeah. And in fairness to him, he did come to me about twenty years later and say, "I, I understand now why you did that." Yeah, <laughs> you know, Which, he's uh, a good pundit as well, isn't he? Oh, he's fantastic. Yeah, he's, he's a good. He's he's great company. He does have a peculiar way of of expressing himself. For example, his, you know the way you get it when you're talking to somebody on a satellite phone and you have a delay. Yeah. Raj has a triple delay. <laughs> Trip, he's like a, a human, a live satellite. Yeah. He just does this delay. He'll and he does this thing with his lip mouth. mouth sorry, he go. So Raj, what did you think of the game today? And he go. What did I think of the game today? Um, and he's you know, live television Roger <laughs> you're eating up the time here yeah well he, he can never be accused of rushing into an answer no anyway. but he's yeah. very he's very, he's very thoughtful he's yeah. very uh, he looks at things differently I mean I, I have to say I admire him what he's done um, obviously just going to France I mean uh, he retires and irony of ironies he rocks up in Rassi 92 two months after Johnny Sexton signs for them which uh, didn't go down well for a while in, in Johnny Sexton's house I don't think but then he goes to New Zealand to go after the yeah. Crusaders and uh, I remember being on the Ireland tour in 2018 Ireland played a three test series in Australia and uh, Raj came over from the matches and uh, so we used to, it was, it was the first time really that you could sit down and have a few pints and a great chat. And you could see he was learning a massive amount in New Zealand. Uh, you could see he, he loves calm. Um, but it was an investment that he was making. And to be fair, not easy. I remember him telling me he had five kids and I was talking about flying to New Zealand for that 87 World Cup. I think uh, with five kids, uh, you have to turn right and go down into steerage as well. <laughs> so uh, as he, 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 he almost felt, in fairness to his wife, Jess, uh, after that flight, five kids and they were all uh, very, very young mm. at the time. Um, I think once they got over that aspect of it, it was onwards and upwards. But uh, He did this podcast as well, Donald. And he's, he asked me the most peculiar question at the start of the podcast. So he was there with the podcast. And he's one of my first guests. I'll have to listen to that. Yeah, it was that. interesting, actually. And he went, all right, Mario. So <clears throat> I was gone. I went, great, Rog. So listen, um, what are we looking at here? Um, <laughs> I went, what? Are we looking at what kind of commitment are you looking for during the podcast? What? Are you looking for what? 70, 80% or, or, or full on like? <laughs> full on, Rog. <laughs> I've never been asked that question. What do you want from me? Do you want 70% Roger, 80% Roger, all Rog? I mean, it's never a bizarre question. Yeah. You know, maybe, anyway, was, maybe, for, maybe that's why he's such a good coach. He kind of thinks about things he, he is, totally different than everybody strange. else. What's your favourite anthem apart from, you know, rugby oh. anthem? Uh, 
Oh, I love the Le Marseillais. Yeah. Yeah, it is different. Especially think, in France. I think the two of them, yeah. the two are, I, I like the Marseillaise and also the Italian one. I love yeah. Fratelli yeah. Italia. I love that. I yeah, love I love the kind of... But the trouble in fairness with the Italians yeah. is they put so much effort and emotion into the into the <laughs> anthem that bet. for the first quarter they're bollocks altogether. They have no energy whatsoever. <laughs> it is only in the last. And look, I mean, we're only having watched the game against France over the weekend to see them miss the kick at the end. I mean, how brilliant would it have been for them to, uh, to have beaten France? They got a draw. Yeah. But uh, again, like you... Uh, funny, I was only listening... Paul O'Connell during the week talking about emotion and he looks back at his career saying oh it was ridiculous we put everything and that we that was our generation as well it was all emotion and uh, physicality and you know dying for the jersey type of thing whereas no they're gone away from all that kind of stuff but yet you look at the Italians and they still have that mm. uh, just again looking at that anthem yesterday in the second row Canone the tears were flowing down his face you know and then at the end the kick how does the ball fall off the tee if there's no wind no rain yeah. in, a, in a stadium that has a, has a roof well Garbisi will regret that for yeah. the rest of his life yeah uh, it's funny, you've you got to prepare for the, um, and this is where the modern player is so much more in tune than players of, of my generation and, and after it. They prepare mentally for moments like this, but obviously Garbisi hadn't mm. in terms of like you have you have 60 seconds for that kick. You've got to make sure you place the ball properly first. But there was about two or three other things. One or two of the French players started running at him, mm. which you can't do. Mm. The ball falls over. Mm. He's then, there's a shot clock now that mm. there was never mm. before. Mm. So he's finding out how many seconds are left. Mm. And he, you know, that didn't, uh, he, he didn't tune into that. He, he hadn't prepared for that moment. No, no. You know, and if you go back again, you remember the famous day Ireland nearly beat New Zealand 2013 in Yes, Lanzo. I was there. Yeah, when um, Ryan Crotty scored yeah. in the corner and, and uh, 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 the kick was Cruden, retaken. Cruden, yeah, they took the uh, Aaron Cruden yeah. converts yeah. from the touchline. Yeah. And I remember asking Johnny Sexton about the, his famous drop goal, the 41 phases against France in 2018. Well, he said, you know, how did you keep your composure? How 41 phases, keeping the ball for two to three minutes, then finding the right moment for the trigger to hit the drop goal from 40 metres. And he says, I'll tell you why, he said, because for five years we had trained for that. When we lost against New Zealand in the last minute, Joe Schmidt finished every training session with four minutes of intensity, massive intensity in terms of defending your line and all that, because if we were ever in that position again we'd be prepared for it yeah. and he said that's exactly what happened yeah. that four minutes against France was uh, achieved on the back of the failure to New Zealand five years earlier It's funny you should say that because I was at that match and I remember after the game in pubs around Dublin and the atmosphere was ecstatic Yes I remember not defeated ecstatic everybody had a look in their eye do you know what the look said? We're there. We're nearly there. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. everybody believed we were nearly there. And I think that night in 2013 was the beginning of yeah. this second. This well, now it's the third generation, but yeah. this second thing where we figured we are nearly there. Mm. And I think there was a thing they had their cards marked. The next time we play you, we're going to get you. And they yeah. did. They did in Chicago. Yeah. yeah. Did you want to say something else? No, no. I just think well, that was Joe Schmidt. Yeah. Joe Schmidt. In fairness, Joe Schmidt brought Ireland. Uh, up 20% yep. in terms of his attention to detail. Yep. He was a stickler. A lot of the players found his environment too much. difficult, mm. too intense. Mm. Um, but Ireland wouldn't have made the progress they made if you didn't have Joe Schmidt. Yep. Andy Farrell took all of that, took yep. all of the very, very best things that Joe Schmidt had put in there, but brought in the empathy and the understanding and the family element. And that was almost like the final ingredient in that they could be as intense as they were under Joe Schmidt, but it was OK to relax. Correct. It was no OK for Peter Romani to have his five-year-old kid on the sideline on the day before the match. Yeah. Uh, I remember being in, in Auckland for that Ireland tour in 2022 when, again, Andy Farrell, in preparation for the World Cup, he uh, took on two extra games against the New Zealand Maori. He brought... 40 players with him and uh, you're playing midweek games and puts massive pressure on the management because they got to prepare two different teams for two games a week 
uh, they had COVID was there at the time a lot of the players went down with COVID then you had players got injured in the first game the whole thing was falling apart around him and uh, but he never panicked and I remember I was in the team hotel I was talking to him at the fire at the hotel up by Centre Point in Auckland I can still see it and uh, there's a hill that goes right down to the waterfront and as I was talking to him about all the injuries and all the, the setbacks and the COVID fellas that he had lost about five players came rolling down. You know these electric scooters? They came zooming past the front door. One of them had two players on the back of them. And I just looked at him and he looked at me and he goes, Mother of jeez. But he'd be, he was, if that was Joe Schmidt, they'd be shot on the spot. <laughs> he was yeah. accepting of that. Yeah. He understood that's part of touring. Yeah. You've got to have your down yeah. time and down yeah. days. Yeah. Uh, but it's, it's, I think, a collection of all those things that has made this group what it is. And, you know, I think we have so much to look forward yes. to. You know, it's, we do, it's we do. Time. And Donald, listen, as you say, it is an amazing time to be a supporter of Irish rugby. And I want to thank you for coming in and sharing your stories from a slightly more personal point of view. I've really enjoyed it. And thank you for coming on. Cheers, Mario. A pleasure. Stop taking the piss out of me. <laughs> <laughs> And my thanks to Donald Lenehan um, for coming in to talk to the Mario Rosenstock podcast. I greatly enjoyed listening to Donald. And um, you'll have the pleasure of listening to him for the rest of the Six Nations competition. We have England left to go and we also have Scotland hopefully playing for a Six Nations um, Grand Slam at home in the Aviva Stadium um, in a few weeks' time. Let's look forward to that. Let's cross our fingers. Um, As usual, you can contact me. It's mariorosenstock at gmail.com. I read all your emails and I get back to most of them. Um, exclusive com- uh, comedy, of course, every week on the Mario Rosenstock podcast. And if you can, tell one other person about this podcast. That's all I ask of you. Until then, I'll see you same time, same place next week. <laughs>